Amen. There are notes in the front and in the back if you need some notes. And you'll need a Bible tonight. We're going to look at some passages. We're going to read some passages. We're going to read a few passages that are a little bit longer than some that we've read in previous weeks. Tonight we're talking about soteriology, which simply means the doctrine of salvation. We're talking about the doctrine of salvation. Um, I think this is probably universally true, meaning all over the world, but I know it's certainly true in the United States that we love stories about rescue and stories about salvation. And I say that because we pay millions upon millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars to go see movies about guys like this. Superheroes. People who save the day. And Marvel Comics and DC Comics and Lord of the Rings and Hobbits and all those sorts of movies that we like to go see. We can laugh at them and we can call them children's movies or teenager movies or whatever you want to call them. But they're entertaining And a lot of the stories are appealing to us, and the characters are appealing to us. And I think the reason these stories resonate with people so deeply is that deep down, these stories resonate with the one true story about somebody who was in trouble, about a global, cataclysmic, world-altering problem that we couldn't fix for ourselves, and we needed some sort of superhero, if I can use that term in that sense, to come and to rescue us and to save us. And if you've seen these movies, you know the plot is always about the same. There's a bad guy, and he wants to hurt people and kill people and destroy people and take over the world and all sorts of evil things, and nobody can stop him, and we're powerless and helpless. And then all of a sudden, here comes a hero from some place that you would never expect him or her to come from. And they sort of swoop in and rescue and save the day. And everyone lives happily ever after until three months later when the next movie comes out. We go right back in and watch the same story all over again. But that resonates with the true story, with our story of Scripture. And if you think about what we've been talking about the last few weeks, okay, systematic theology, and we're taking one doctrine at a time. It's almost like we've been putting together all the pieces you need in a good superhero story. And so we started with, you got to know the setting and you got to know who the characters are. And so we started off and we talked about God and what he's like and some of his attributes and the fact that he exists as a trinity. We talked about creation. That's the setting for everything that took place. We talked about the creation of people and the creation of angels. All of that is just sort of setting the stage for this story. And then a few weeks back, we introduced the conflict, which is sin. And we talked about how sin came into the world through Adam and Eve, and it spread to all men because all men sinned with Adam. And this is problem that we cannot, absolutely cannot fix on our own. And in the last two weeks, we've been talking about the hero. Who is it that's going to come rescue us? And I talked the first week about who is Jesus, what is his person. And Corey did a great job last week talking about What did he do for us? How is it that Jesus actually rescues us? And tonight, the doctrine of soteriology is sort of the culmination, in a sense, of all of that. This is a great night to take a break on because we've got spring break coming next week. We'll have a week off. This is a great night. We've sort of built up to this. Our storyline has reached its climax. 
in soteriology or the doctrine of salvation is sort of our experience of all the things that we've been talking about. How do all of those pieces come together for our good? We're going to talk about that tonight. And just so you know, we're going to continue this series after spring break, after a one-week break, and we, we're exactly halfway. We've got 20 doctrines we're covering total. Tonight is number 10 that we're talking about, and we have 10 more on the other side of spring break. So hope you'll stick with us uh, after time change and the warmer weather and all that good stuff. Um, so this week, I'm reading, and I'm reading some commentaries and some theology books, and um, when I read things and prepare for sermons, I like to read uh, not just people who think like me. Like From time to time, I like to read like crazy people, theologians who have wacky ideas, because I like to see what they think and, you know, sort of bounce ideas back and forth. And I kind of know when I'm studying, like I pick the book up first, you know, and you say, okay, this is a good one. I know this guy. I like this guy. This is going to be good. Or you pick it up and you say, this guy's a crazy person. This is going to be terrible, but I'm going to read it anyways. It's going to be interesting. And so this week I'm reading, and I pick up a book. It's one of my favorite authors, favorite theologians. And so I'm sort of in the mindset of, okay, I can trust this guy. The things that he says are good. I've read the book, and I agree with a lot of what he says, and I come across this line. I, I don't think I read it the first couple of times I read this book. And uh, do I have it up on the, on the slide? This is what he said. The work of Christ alone is not enough to get you to heaven. And I'm, I'm just sort of skimming through this book, you know, and, and it's a guy I know and I trust and well-respected, and I read that, and I'm like, wait a minute. I turn the cover over and look, what am I reading right now? Go back, and I, I start reading a little more closely. And uh, it's sort of an attention-getting sentence, right? The work of Christ alone is not enough to get you to heaven. You think, what are you, some kind of like, Catholic theologian, and you've got to do works, you've got to do penance, you got to, what in the world is he talking about? And this is what he's talking about when I read it in context, and I agree with it 100%. He's saying, salvation is not just what Jesus does for us. Salvation is what the Trinitarian God does for us. And the Father has a role to play in that. And the Son has a role to play in that. And the Holy Spirit has a role to play in that. And the Father's job, when you read Scripture, this this work in salvation parallels his work in creation, by the way. But the Father's job is sort of to plan, to lay it all out to be the mastermind, if you will, of what's going to happen. And the son's job is to accomplish it, to actually get it done. And the spirit's job, sometimes we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit after spring break. Sometimes we don't really know what to do with the Holy Spirit. Like, he's out there, we believe in the Holy Spirit, but it's kind of weird. Look, the Spirit, you need the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's job is to take what the Father planned and the Son accomplished and to apply it to your life. And if the Trinity doesn't work together in salvation, sinners like me and sinners like you don't experience salvation. And so we're talking about salvation tonight and how we experience that. We're going to start with the question we've started with every week, what do I need to know? Tonight, what do I need to know about soteriology? And I've got four or five or six things here we're going to, we're going to run through. Number one, you cannot understand the biblical teaching about salvation unless you first understand the biblical teaching about sin. And I could fill that blank in and I could say, you got to understand the Bible, you got to understand God. We could put a lot of things in there and it would make sense. 
But I really think where people struggle with this doctrine of salvation sometimes is they don't have a good grasp on what the Bible says about sin, about what our condition is before God. Now, we've looked all these verses up, so we're not going to look them up tonight. Just as you look at that list, let me remind you what they say. Okay, Genesis 6-5, the Lord God looked down on the children of man, and he saw that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a description of all people on the other side of Genesis 3, the fall. The Lord looks down on all the people, and every intention of the thought of every heart is only evil continually. It's not directed towards him and honoring him, but it's bent towards sin. Psalm 51.5, David says, In sin I was conceived, or I was sinful from birth from the time my mother conceived me, depending on the, the translation that you read. And he's saying, this is not something that just sort of came into my life when I was five years old and I stole a cookie from the cookie jar for the first time. This is something I was born with. This is something that led me to steal the cookie from the cookie jar when I was five years old. It's a problem that I've had even from conception. Isaiah 59.2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. He does not see and he does not hear. Your sins make a real gulf, a real separation between you and God. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Your heart is not okay. You can't trust it. You can't follow it. You can't rely on it. It's twisted and it's warped by sin. Romans 3, 9 to 18. There is none who seek God, not even one. It's quoting Psalm, two chapters in the book of Psalms, 54 and 14, that talk about no one on their own seeking God. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that they don't see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. They don't see it because they've been blinded. Ephesians 2 is the best summary of all of it. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. So sometimes you hear people explain this predicament, and I know we've already talked about it, but sometimes you hear people explain this predicament with the idea of a hole. Okay, Imagine a a giant hole in the ground. I got to looking for a picture of a sinkhole today, and I got distracted, and I didn't put one up here. So in your mind, picture a sinkhole. Okay, Sinkhole. And... uh, You're there with God, and God sees this hole, and you see the hole, and God says to you, don't go in the hole. Whatever you do, don't go in the hole. God leaves, and as soon as he's gone, you go in the hole, right? And you get in the hole, and you look up, and you say, man, it's a long ways up, and the walls are steep, and I don't think I can get out of here. I'm stuck down here. That's sort of the biblical picture of sin as it's described a lot of times, right? God has given you a command. You transgress that command. You rebel against his wishes for you. You then find yourself in a situation that you can't get yourself out of. You're incapable of solving that problem. That's a pretty good analogy. There's only one problem with it when you listen to what the Bible says about our sin. You take that same analogy, you say there's a pit, there's a hole. God says don't go into it, he leaves. You go down into it. And you die at the bottom. And you're there at the bottom, dead. Getting out is not even on your mind. That's the biblical picture of sin. You understand that? No one seeks God. No one, the Bible says it three times, no one gets down to the bottom of that pit and says, on their own, 
I sure wish I could get out of this pit. They're just down in the bottom of the pit. They're spiritually dead, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. And if you don't get that, if you don't get the weight of what the Bible has to say about our condition apart from God's grace, you're really easily going to go off track when it comes to the doctrine of salvation. So you've got you to gotta nail that down. Okay, Number two, there is no salvation apart from the proclamation of the gospel. No salvation apart from the proclamation of the gospel. So I don't want to pick at a sore wound for anybody or make you feel bad or make you think I'm trying to embarrass you or anything, but there's this book that was written a while back called The Shack, and it just came out in the movie, and a lot of people love it, and a lot of people aren't so crazy about it. Here's one thing you cannot deny. In the book and in the movie, it presents the idea that there is salvation outside of a knowledge of Jesus Christ, that people in other faith traditions, without ever hearing the gospel, could have God work in their life in such a way that even though they never hear the gospel, they never repent of their sin, they never trust in Jesus, they end up saved because of their sincerity or their genuineness or whatever. And the people who sort of try to defend that say, oh, look, why do you, why you want to put God in a box? Why you got to try to limit God? God's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. Da, 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 da. He is God. He can do whatever he wants to do. But he has revealed to us in Scripture that that's not how it works. Is not how it works. Look at Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, starting in verse 13, says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Meaning, they have to believe before they can call on him for salvation. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? They've got to hear about it before they can believe. How are they to hear without someone preaching, i.e. the gospel? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If they're not sent and they don't preach and they don't hear and they don't believe... They can never call on his name for salvation. And you can throw in my face all you want. Well, well, you're putting God in a box. And I say, well, this is sort of the box that God has drawn for himself in saying this is how it works. So unless you can explain that to me in a way that opens up some extra door for people who have never heard about Jesus to be saved, then I'm going to stick with Romans 10. Just this last week, two weeks ago, I had a friend text me about this issue. It's not about the movie or the book. It was just a different issue. And uh, we were discussing, do you really have to hear? And this guy had done some digging and thinking about it. It wasn't just sort of a flippant question for him. And he said, well, what about Cornelius? Remember Cornelius in the book of Acts? Flip over to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. He said, what about Cornelius? Cornelius seems like he was a pretty good guy who maybe he was saved and God liked him and loved him and they had some kind of relationship and then because of that, God sent Peter to go preach to him. So let's just look at Acts 10 
And we're not going to read all of 10 and 11. You can study it. You ought to study it. But we'll just read a little bit here. Acts 10.1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. So this is a religious guy. This is not some guy running a brothel. This is not some guy running a slave trade operation. This is a guy who gives to the poor, who prays, he fears God. And it says, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror. He said, what is it, Lord? And he said, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants, a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And you can keep reading about Peter. Peter has his own little vision and God tells him to go. Jump over and look at verse 24. On the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them. Of course he was expecting them. He called together his relatives and his close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. So I'm going to say to my friend, already we have proof that Cornelius is a little bit confused, right? Does he have some idea of God and respect for God? Yes. Does he give money to poor people? Yes. Does he feel like he's praying to God? Yes. But as soon as a man walks in, he bows down to worship this man. So he's a little bit confused at the very least. Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. And he talked with him and he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or visit with anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Uh, So when I was sent for, I came with that objection. I asked then why you sent me. And he says, we're here to, to listen to whatever God has to say. And Peter shares the gospel with them. End of the chapter, the Holy Spirit falls. And these guys, Cornelius and his buddies, they all get saved. And the church then has a sort of a dilemma, like, Wait a minute, we got Gentiles now getting saved and they're getting the Holy Spirit just like we got the Holy Spirit. And they, they have this brain trust meeting in chapter 11 to sort it all out. And I want you to just read part of what Peter says. Peter tells them the whole story. But look what he says in verse 13. This is Peter. He says, He told us how he'd seen an angel standing in his house, saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. And look what verse 14 says. This is Peter recounting the words of Cornelius. What the angel told to Cornelius, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You are not saved now. And this man Peter is going to come and declare a message to you, the gospel message. And when you hear that message, that's when you're going to experience salvation. You don't have it now. Yes, you're a religious guy. You're doing some nice deeds. All that stuff's great. But you're lost. You're trying to bow down and worship a man. Peter is going to come and he's going to declare this message by which you can be saved. So there's no salvation apart from the proclamation of the gospel. Number three, in his grace, God calls his people to salvation and he gives them new life. This is something that God does. He calls his people to salvation and he gives them new life. And I want to read an Old Testament passage. 
I want to read a New Testament passage that explains this, and it, they're so clear, I don't think it requires a whole lot of comment. Look at Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. We already talked about Jeremiah 17 that says your heart is deceitful and wicked and beyond understanding and you can't trust it and it's warped and it's twisted and Paul says you're spiritually dead. Look at Ezekiel 36. And this is going to read a little while. Look at verse 22. The people have been sent into exile. They've been punished for their rebellion. And Ezekiel speaking to them in exile. He says, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. So it says right there, to be clear, that God is about to act. Not the people, but God's about to do something. Verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. From your idols I will cleanse you. And here it comes in verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Because your old heart's dead. It's like a rock in your chest. It is worthless, so I'm going to give you a new heart. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you will be my people, and I will be my God. And you can continue to, re- to, to read this passage, but you get the idea. God's saying to him, I'm going to do something. I'm going to give you life. Your heart is dead. I'm going to take it out, and I'm going to give you a heart that works. Look at the parallel passage in 1 Corinthians 1. First Corinthians 1, verse 18. It says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written in the book of Isaiah, that I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. There's that idea again, preaching the gospel, salvation. Through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of were were of noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God, You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay. When God creates this new spiritual life, this is your sub-point here, uh, A, 
It's called regeneration. The Bible word for that is being born again. God does that out of his grace. Causes us to be born again. He said that to Ezekiel. You're not going to do anything, but I'm going to act. And I'm going to give you this new heart. And he says the same thing through Paul. You Corinthians, you guys were a bunch of nobodies. It's not like you came and gave yourself a new heart. But God called you in his grace and gave you this new life. Okay, this is important, this idea of regeneration. I just want you to read a few passages. I know we've read a lot already, but there's a couple of verses I don't want you to miss. So look at John chapter 3. John 3. This is straight from the lips of Jesus talking about the new birth. John 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these things, these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You must have new life, Nicodemus. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's thinking about physical birth. And Jesus says, Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, unless you're physically born and spiritually born, you can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then he starts to talk about the wind. In, in English, you're like, what does the wind have to do with this? What is, I thought we were talking about the Spirit. Now he's talking about the wind. In the Greek word, it's the same word. In the Greek, it's the same word, wind and spirit. It's the same word. So he's still talking about the Spirit. It blows where it wishes. You hear the sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That's regeneration, being born again. And it's something that the Spirit of God does to sinful people. Look at Ephesians 2. Again, this is so clear in Ephesians 2. Verse 1 says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive. We were dead, and God made us alive. He did that. It's regeneration. It's new birth. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Just flip to the right a few pages. Colossians 2, verse 13 like a parallel verse to what we just read. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. You were dead, God made you alive. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Same idea. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, my point is that this is something God does. He caused us to be born again. We can't conjure it up on our own. So in his grace, God calls people, he calls sinners, and he gives them this new life. We call that regeneration. Okay? Now we're moving on to our response. Okay? This is number four. Conversion takes place when a sinner repents 
and believes in Jesus. So conversion involves two things. It involves a turning from sin and a turning to Jesus. Both of those go together. For the sake of time, I'm going to let you look these verses up. Some of them talk about repentance. Some of them talk about faith. Some of them combine both of those ideas. But they're all there in this idea of conversion. Let me just mention this. There's an odd stream of teaching. It's odd to me, to the people who believe it. It's not odd. Maybe that's not a good word to use. There's a stream of teaching, an idea. Uh, Sometimes it's called the free grace position or free grace theology. And it emphasizes this idea, which we'll get to, that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, which we'd agree with that. But it takes that to the extreme and says repentance is in no way, shape, or form connected to your salvation experience. They wouldn't like to use the word it's optional, but that's essentially what they're saying. You you can do it, you can repent, but that's not part of the deal. You don't have to do that. And sometimes they try to get cute with it and they try to say things like, well, repentance, it doesn't really mean, um, it doesn't really mean that you have to change your life. It just sort of means you change your mind about things and you just sort of admit that you were wrong and nothing really has to change in your life for you to receive salvation. And I'm telling you, when you push back on these guys and you try to say, wait a minute, the Bible connects repentance and faith like they go together and you can't separate them. Like Jesus, when he starts preaching in Mark 1, he says, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. They go together. You can't separate them. And these guys get really mad. So a few months ago, um, some of you guys, if you read the paper, you know every now and then they, uh, for some reason, let me write a little something on the religion page on Saturday. And so I put a little something in there. And I, a few months back, put something in there that talked about this, that repentance is part of conversion. And people got mad. Some people got really mad and wrote me some not-so-nice emails. And one guy who was a former pastor in this area came up to set me straight in my office and to tell me da-da-da-da-da-da-da and this and this and this. And I just said, here's the thing. Mark 1.15, explain that to me. The day of Pentecost, what do we need to do to be saved? Repent and be baptized. Why, why did he tell them to repent if they didn't have to repent? Well, you don't understand, you young whippersnapper. I'm telling you, these guys, they get, real, they get real wound up tight about it. Let's talk about repentance. It's a change of mind, and it leads to a change of life. The word means change of mind, but when that really happens, it does lead to a change of life. And it is part of conversion, meaning a sinner cannot turn to Jesus with genuine faith unless they are also turning from sin. Those two things go together, okay? It's a change of mind, and it leads to a change of life. Um, Let's talk about faith. I did not have space on your outline. I had to cut some of these things out. So I'm just going to put some some words on the screen and you can look at these. We're talking about faith now, okay? Moving on from repentance. During the Reformation, guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli and all these uh, Booser, different uh, Reformation theologians, they're trying to pin down, because they're breaking away from this works-based system of salvation, they're trying to break down what is saving faith. What is involved in it? And they use these three words to describe it. Notitia, 
it, uh, it comes from the Latin word talking about your mind. You've got to know things. And so under notitia, they're saying there's got to be a content to it. You have to hear the gospel. You have to understand the gospel. So they use that word. They use this word ascensus, and it's the idea that you're sort of giving assent to it. You believe that it's true. There's some sort of conviction like, yes, there was a guy named Jesus. He did die on the cross for sinners. I believe that that's true. So there's a knowledge component. There's an agreement with the facts, with the knowledge component. And then this last word, fiducia, is the idea that you have a personal trust in it. Meaning, I've heard the gospel, the truth about Jesus. I believe what you're telling me is true. And then they add this other idea to it. And they say, I don't just believe it's true. I believe it's true for me. There's this personal sense of trust in what you're describing. And so that's sort of a a helpful way of thinking about saving faith. Also on the note of faith, this one is in your outline. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Yes, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone, meaning it's always accompanied by good works. And I've given you all these verses And there's some other verses I really want to get to, and for the sake of time, we're going to skip this. Uh, You can look these verses up. And about half these verses I gave you here emphasize that it's faith, it's faith, it's faith, it's faith. Faith alone saves you. And the other half of these verses emphasize, well, what does that faith look like? James 2, well, it's faith that works. And if it doesn't do that, it's dead faith, and it's useless faith. And so both of those ideas you've got to hold together. This is a big one. This is, uh, I don't know what number we're on here. See, both faith and repentance continue throughout your life. They both continue. Listen to me. Saving faith is not the person who at one moment in their life repeats a verbatim prayer, raises a hand, signs a card, and then they leave that in the past and they go on with the rest of their life. That is not saving faith. It might begin just like that, but if it's saving faith, it will continue throughout a person's life. And the same thing is true of repentance. Repentance is not something you do one time. I was talking with a group of guys lately, we were talking about pride in our lives and what the Bible says about pride, and we sort of joked and said, well, it's good, now we've had this Bible study, this won't be an issue for any of us anymore, right? Like, we've nipped this one in the bud, we can check it off the list, we've admitted it, we've repented, you know that's not how it works. you got to fight it every single day, and that's what repentance is. So to give you some background on this, once upon a time, exactly 500 years ago, kind of cool, 500 years ago, there was a guy named Martin Luther. He was a monk in Germany. He began to read the Bible. He began to understand things that the Catholic Church was teaching that weren't exactly right. And one day he takes 95 sort of statements or objections or theses and he writes them down. And he goes to the church door in Wittenberg and he nails it up there on the church door as 95 theses. The very first one that he nails up there, first on the list, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And what he's saying is, look, you can't go drop your five bucks in the offering plate, say a little prayer, repent of all the bad stuff you did, and think you get to go to heaven automatically someday. That's not how it works. And that's not how repentance works in our life. It's not something you do only once, but it's a continual fighting, continual turning from sin. So it continues throughout your life. Got to hurry. In the New Testament... 
especially in the book of Acts, repentance and faith and baptism are connected. And I didn't give you any verses intentionally because I'm going to talk about this when we get to the doctrine of baptism. I just want to mention it here to say, in the book of Acts, these three things go together. And sometimes someone will say, what do I need to do to be saved? And the apostles will say, believe in the Lord Jesus, you and your household, and you'll be saved. Believe. And then sometimes they'll say, what do I need to do to be saved? And they'll say, repent and be baptized. And you sort of want to stop and say, wait a minute, they didn't have to believe? Or the other guys didn't have to repent and get baptized? Or how does that work? And the idea is they're not necessarily all three mentioned every time, but they all three go together. I'm going to talk about baptism and how that fits into things in a few weeks. Uh, One last idea, just to summarize conversion, okay? This was some of the stuff that got some of these local guys mad at me. What does genuine conversion look like? It involves comprehension, meaning you have to know the truth of the gospel. You've got to hear it. You've got to understand it. Whether you're 90, 50, 9 years old, on your level, it's got to make sense. You've got to comprehend the content. There's got to be conviction in your life. Conviction that what you're hearing is true, and you could say conviction that your sin is sin. That it's wrong and it's dishonoring to God. There's got to be commitment, meaning you have to act on it. You have to make some sort of response to this. Repentance and faith would be that commitment. And I add in genuine conversion looks like church. We talked about this a little bit Sunday. There's just no idea in the New Testament of a Christian floating around out there not connected to a church. You read the book of Acts, these guys get saved and they're connected to the church. They're connected with other believers. So that's conversion, okay? One last thing I did not have room for, and I'm not going to put it up long enough for you to write it down. You can come copy my notes if you're so obsessive, compulsive that you can't miss it, or you can get your cell phone out real quick and take a picture or whatever you need to do, but it's going up there for a second. Word pictures of salvation. Corey mentioned some of these. I'm just going to throw them up there and mention each one. Salvation, we've talked about that. It's the idea of being rescued or delivered. Justification is the declaration. When you repent and believe, God declares that you are righteous. You're not. You're a sinner. But he makes a declaration as the judge that you are righteous and your account has been paid and you're in good standing with him. Redemption, it's the idea that you've been ransomed, you've been purchased. Corey talked about that last week. Sanctification, and when I use the word here in this list, I'm not talking about how you get more and more and more holy over time. I'm talking about the idea that God sets you apart. And there's verses in the, in the New Testament that say, you have been, past tense, sanctified. Not you are in an ongoing way being sanctified, but you have been, you've been set apart. Reconciliation, a a relationship has been restored. Adoption, you've been brought into God's family. Forgiveness, your debt has been canceled or your debt has been paid. All of those great word pictures of salvation. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks talking about all of those. And that's just the nature of this study. We've got to move through some things pretty quick. Okay, One last idea for you good Baptists. I liked this guy's quote so much, I, I tried to change it and improve it, and I thought, well, I can't, so I'm just going to put the quote in here, okay? All of those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and, 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 and 
And they will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And only those who persevere until the end have truly been born again. So if you want to have a discussion about once saved, always saved, yes, I believe in once saved, always saved. I don't think it communicates the fullness of the biblical teaching and the biblical doctrine of the security of the believer. And I think it's just sort of too cheeky. It's a soundbite. It's like trying to understand politics with a 30-second soundbite on the news. You can't do it. You're just, it, it's nonsense. And you just throw that out there, and it, people don't understand it, and it's confusing. So let's just say what we mean. What we mean is God keeps his people. He keeps them. They're secure. They cannot be lost. Jesus says, I hold my people in my hand, and no one can take them from me. The book of Jude God, who is worthy to be praised, he will keep you safe and secure. He will not lose his people. And those he keeps will persevere. They'll endure. They'll continue to follow Jesus. They won't fall away. And the Bible says in 1 John, the ones who fall away, the ones who go out from us, well, it's just proof that they were never of us to begin with. They were not part of us because true believers will endure. Okay? Why does all this matter? Believe me, it matters. Five, four reasons. Four reasons. On the last day, many will be surprised to discover that Jesus never knew them. I just can't, I can't wrap my brain around how haunting this thought is. Especially when you live in the United States of America. Especially when you live in the Bible Belt. How haunting this thought is. Matthew 7, let's read it. You know what it says, but look at it in the text and read it. Matthew 7, verse 21. This, this first sentence, first phrase, it ought to explode and obliterate and destroy the way 90% of the churches in the United States share the gospel with people. It ought to just explode it, never to come back again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. How many times have you heard somebody stand up on a platform and look at a crowd in the eye and say, if you repeat this prayer after me, congratulations, you are saved now. Because you said, Lord, Lord? Well, what did Jesus just say? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, they're going to say it again. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And you read that and you're like, well, it sounds like they did the will of the Father. It sounds like they were busy doing a lot of stuff. And Jesus is just saying, look, there's going to be people on that day, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wasn't real. Wasn't genuine. And I don't know you. I have never known you. You need to get this doctrine straight on how salvation works and how you experience it. And it's not... Sometimes I have discussions with people and they sort of have this idea of, well, you know, as long as somebody goes to church, I don't care what church they go to, as long as they're going to church. I say, no, I don't know about that. 
What if they're going to a church that is confused about the doctrine of salvation? They might go and spend their life doing religious things just like these people, only on the last day to hear Jesus say, I don't know you. It matters. And that doesn't mean you only can go to a Baptist church or you only can go to this kind of church or that kind of church, but it does mean that it matters what kind of church you go to and what they teach about the doctrine of salvation. It matters very, very much. So many will be surprised. Number two, we need to know, and in the Bible Belt we're so confused about this, we need to know how to find assurance of salvation. What does the Bible say about that? In the typical sort of cheeky, shallow American Christian answer is, well, have you invited Jesus into your heart? If you've done that, you're saved. That's how you have assurance. Did you pray the prayer? Did you say the thing? Did you do the stuff? Whatever. In 1 John, if you want to have assurance of your salvation, you ought to read the book of 1 John because at the end of that book, John says this, 1 John 5, 13, I write these things And I'm writing them to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So if you want to know if you have eternal life, one of the best places to turn, in fact, the first place I tell people to turn is the book of 1 John. And John's going to say things in this book like, do you believe the truth about Jesus? Because if you deny the truth about Jesus, you're not saved. Do you love the brothers? Do you love people in your church? If you don't love them, you're not saved. Do you have sin in your life that's just ongoing and you're not doing anything about it? Because if you just have this ongoing sin in your life and you don't feel bad about it and there's no repentance, you're not saved. And he tells you all through the book, this is how you know that you have eternal life. So we need to know how to find assurance of our salvation. Number three, the church has to be on guard against false gospels. Galatians 1 The church in Galatia was confused about the doctrine of salvation. They were totally off base on what does it mean to be saved. And Paul writes the meanest, hottest, most scathing letter to that church. And he says this in Galatians 1 verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and you are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there's some who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. Even if we, Paul and his friends, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Literally, let him be damned. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Am I seeking the approval of man or God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So he knows it's not popular. He knows that these guys are going to say, oh, Paul, lighten up. Get over it. What's the big deal? You're, such a, you're so wound up tight. You've got to relax. You need a, you need a vacation or you need a something. You need a drink or I don't know. You've got to loosen up, man. You're... And Paul says, I'm not trying to please you. I'm trying to please God in this. And if anyone comes to you with some message of salvation different than what you heard, salvation by faith in Christ alone, let them be damned. I'm just telling you, in the Bible Belt, where American Christianity is just so wacky, there is a lot of false gospel out there. And you hear it from pulpits, and you read it from books that you buy at the Christian bookstore, 
and you see it in movies that get labeled as faith films or family-friendly films or Christian films or whatever label you put on it to make you feel better about it. And Paul, if he just walked into our country today, I just think he would say, if it comes to you as a from me or from an angel from heaven or in a movie or in a book you bought at Mardell or from a pulpit you heard or from a podcast that was under the religion Christian section on iTunes, I don't care where it comes from. If it's different than what we're talking about here, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, let them be cursed. Last idea is this. We've got to know the message we're commanded to preach. Look at Luke 24. It's sort of like the the lesser known version of the Great Commission. We usually think of Matthew 28. Luke 24 says this. Verse 45. Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Our job is to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins. How does that happen? You've got to understand that if your job is to go out and tell people about that. You can't be fuzzy about it. You can't be in the ballpark about it. You can't just try to throw some nice churchy slogans and phrases out there. You've got to get it. If your job and my job is to go and to take that message to all the nations, repentance and forgiveness of sins, we've got to know the message that we're commanded to preach. So, a few books just to suggest. Um, I got the list, and they're all up here if you want to look at them. Um, if you never have read a book by Charles Spurgeon, this would be a great one to read. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in London. Um, pastored one of the sort of original megachurches in London and uh, stood against false teaching and the false gospel that was prevalent even in his day, long, long time ago. And this book called All of Grace is a great explanation of salvation and how we experience it in our lives. This next book I'm going to mention is called Visual Theology. Any of you guys like books with pictures? Because I like books with pictures. And this book has a lot of pictures. And it's by Tim Challies and Josh Byers. And it's a book about theology. And they say a lot about here. It's not only about salvation, but there's a lot about salvation. And uh, it's got infographics and diagrams and sort of charts and colors. And uh, like, who wouldn't like this? Look at that flow chart. Isn't that beautiful right there? That is fantastic. So there's some really good stuff in here. And uh, if you like pictures and you need that to hold your attention every now and then like I do... Uh, there's some really good stuff in here, visual theology. So there's a couple of books for you to think about.